Will you pray with me? Lord, we do ask that uh, in the quietness of this hour of worship, um, mysteriously as we read your word together and listen to your voice, that you will commune with us and guide us along the way. For Jesus' sake, amen. In just a few minutes, we're going to read from Acts chapter 15. And today's message is all about um, relationships, partnerships, teamwork, how God loves to use these things, but how some way at times they can get in the way of listening to God's call as well. Um, back in the 1900s, there was a famous comedic duo called Abbott and Costello. Perhaps you've heard of them. Uh, they crisscrossed the country, radio, early TV. Uh, Costello, by the way, is the guy with the hat on, and Abbott is the uh, taller and more slender fellow. Uh, they were probably most famous for this little sketch called Who's on First? Have you ever heard of, heard of this? Where they're trying to figure out the names of the guys on a baseball team, and uh, you know, one of them is telling the other, Who's on First? Well, that's what I'm trying to find out. Who's on First? Yes. Who's on First? What? No. What's on second? Who? Who's on first? What are you trying? What is on second? This goes on for 10 minutes. And then finally one of them throws their hands up in the air and says, I don't care. To which the response is, I don't care. He's our shortstop. <laughs> now, Abbott and Costello, successful comedians, jovial fellows. Here's what many people do not know. Back in 1945, Costello publicly accused Abbott of having a drinking problem. Abbott, in response, threatened to beat up Costello, who subsequently quit speaking to his partner except for when they were on stage performing. They literally went from 1945 to 1957 as America's number one comedic duo never talking to each other when they weren't performing until 1957 when Abbott retired from comedy to race horses. It's not very funny, is it? The Bible in the New Testament church has a seemingly parallel story. Two similarly talented men, not comedians, but evangelists, preachers, who come to an enormous impasse. Their names are Paul and Barnabas. Now, it's kind of a mystery, even to experts in church history, how exactly the Christian church spread so far and fast and thoroughly and geographically in such a short period after Jesus of Nazareth's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But it did. And Paul and Barnabas, these two guys, were on the front edge of this explosion of faith in Jesus Christ. Paul, for his part, was the smartest kid in class, okay? He was passionate, he was purposeful, he was an ardent Jew, um, even to the point of persecuting Christians until one day he had a face-to-face -face encounter with the living and ruling Lord Jesus Christ who knocked him off his horse, gave him the temporary gift of blindness, and then restored him and called him to be a church planter extraordinaire. Barnabas. We know he was from the island country of Cyprus, big island in the Mediterranean Sea, just 100 miles off the coast from Israel and Syria, for you geography buffs. He was probably the nicest kid in class. 
We know he was generous and kind. He was given this nickname, the Son of Encouragement. So these two were this dynamic duo of starting churches in the immediate uh, aftermath of Jesus' ascension. We know they spent um, a long time together uh, traveling around what is now modern Turkey um, in the Mediterranean world, starting these new churches. Now here's where the scripture from Acts chapter 15 comes in. They've had this outstanding success. People are coming to faith. They've sort of come back home uh, to uh, Israel, modern Syria. They're meeting with other believers. And then Paul has this idea. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit all the believers in the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and let's see how they were doing. Kind of like a checkup. You know, how are things spiritually going? You new believers, we want to encourage you in the faith. Now Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. Let's take the young guy. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia earlier and had not continued with them in work. So here's the thing. It's Paul and Barnabas, the dynamic duo, but they're also kind of teaching and training and mentoring some younger folks along the way. And one of the folks they were mentoring is named John Mark. Now it seems that on their earlier missionary journeys and travels, John Mark had either flaked out or had gotten homesick or life had gotten really hard and he left them and went back home. And now a few years later, they're about to take this um, big trip once again. Paul is single-minded and focused and purposeful. We're going to encourage the believers and we're going to start some more churches. And Barnabas is like, well, as we're mentoring these young guys, let's take John Mark with us again. I see so much potential in him. By the way, do you know who wrote the book of Mark? This guy, John Mark, right? Not bad. He had a lot of potential, right? He wrote part of the Bible. Come on, people. <clears throat> but Paul, because he was so single-minded and focused, doesn't want any part of it. Here's what happens. They had such a sharp disagreement, Paul and Barnabas did, that they parted company. Now, the Bible's word here for sharp disagreement means, like, end-of-the-world apocalyptic meltdown. Okay? A massive disagreement. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Remember, I told you that's where he came from. He goes back home to his own people. But Paul chose a new partner, Silas. And they left, followed the plan. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This seems like an Abbott and Costello moment, is what I'm driving at here. I'm amazed how honest the Bible is in recounting events like this. You know, this didn't have to be in the Bible. If you're trying to paint a perfectly rosy picture of the church... Why include a seemingly painful or difficult moment like this? Why not just gloss over it? But here it is, the two leading stars of the growing Christian church, and they part ways. Now, they have a lot in common, Paul and Barnabas, right? They are both called to start new churches and strengthen believers. And Paul is so single-minded and focused on that that he will permit nothing that distracts him. Their fundamental philosophy and beliefs and commitments, identical. How they carry it out from this point on, quite different. 
So Barnabas takes this young guy, John Mark, with him. He continues to mentor new Christian leaders. And notice he goes back to his home country, where probably he believes he can be maximally effective among his own people. Paul does not train the young guys. He goes around the world and plants as many churches as he can, and he plants them all the way from Israel to Spain. And he is unbelievably effective. John Mark writes the Gospel of Mark, and Paul writes more than a dozen books in the New Testament. Writes something amazing and good and fruitful comes out of this. This situation brought to mind another modern comedy. They're not exactly a team. Two modern comedians who work together. These two fellows. You recognize these guys? John Stewart and Stephen Col Colbert. Colbert. The Colbert Report. All right. Nobody watches this? I don't even have cable and I watch this. All right. So, John Stewart has had this little show called The Daily Show. Uh, just, um, he just retired from it after 16 long years. Um, basically, John Stewart is committed to two things. Patriotism in the United States of America and making fun of everybody under the sun. Right? And I got this right. All right. Stephen Colbert was a um, sort of sideman on John Stewart's show. He was a kind of on-the-ground reporter, and he basically plays a caricature of himself. He plays kind of an obnoxious expert political pundit who's always just like 10 degrees off. So he's doing these interviews, but he's always missing some significant part of the picture so that the interviews turn out hilariously. Okay? Now in 2005, Stephen Colbert parted company with Jon Stewart to start his own show. And the two you know, have really been doing separate things since then. Here's a picture just from a couple weeks ago of these two guys. They love each other. They're holding hands. On this occasion, tears were shed and they kissed. Okay? They are cut from the same cloth. And here's the thing about these two guys. They share the two core commitments of fierce patriotism and love for the United States and making fun of everybody under the sun. Okay? That is what they are both committed to down to their shoes. But they have two very different strategies of how to do it. Jon Stewart, for these 16 years, did it by having a spoof nightly news show. Okay? That's how he did it. That's how he executed it. Stephen Colbert did it by basically imitating Bill O'Reilly. Right? By being like the single personality, but by being more obnoxious and goofy about it. John Stewart is a Jewish person. Stephen Colbert is a Roman Catholic person. What they share in common is patriotism and comedy. Two very different ways of doing it. And they love each other even though they parted company um, along the way. So here's the thing. If this dynamic duo of comedians can do this, you know, have common values but two very different ways of executing it, if they can do this over comedy and politics, what might be possible in the kingdom of God where the stakes are so much higher, where we share so much in common? Hear these words from Jesus himself. 
Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now the stakes are getting really high here, right? I mean, these two comedians parted ways professionally and with their friendship temporarily in order, you know, for their, their calling. And Jesus is saying here, when it comes to following me and God's calling in your life, what relationship compares to that? Will you read these words with me? These are, whew, these are huge words, the first paragraph together. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now people think Jesus is so gentle and nice. There is nothing nice about this. And then he continues, Who does, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life, this is the great American project, whoever finds their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Not a great friendship, not a great professional partnership, not even flesh and blood, says Jesus, can take first place over your commitment to follow me and listen to God's voice and leading in your life. Paul and Barnabas lost a huge part of their life together, right? They lost their friendship. They lost this incredibly successful gospel partnership when they parted company. But because they each followed God's vision for their life, Barnabas to mentor the young pastor and return to his home island, Paul to single-mindedly plant new churches, what the kingdom of God got out of the deal in return were two great church planting teams and two different Holy Spirit-inspired uh, authors of the New Testament. It wasn't just a spat over, I want to take him, I don't want to take him. It was that the common commitment to spread the good news of Jesus Christ was executed by Paul and Barnabas in two radically different ways, and it trumped their friendship, their relationship, their partnership. I'm going to bring this dynamic a little closer to home because in following God's calling, like these words from Jesus, they're words we want to forget or overlook. Uh, they're not the first words we have our children memorize in Sunday school. Uh, Sarah and I, 18 years ago, uh, I was just done with seminary. We had this um, little one-year-old baby. And uh, we started thinking, praying, asking, uh, you know, where God in the world do you want us to serve? We're open, we're available, we're young, we're stupid, we're ready to help, what do you want us to do? And there was one particular day where our phone rang on separate occasions, and each of the calls, Sarah and I just took these separately, were from the state of California, just totally out of the blue. Was not seeking anything, California came calling our house. And this, the way it happened, we started wondering, is there something to this? Like, we're both from the Midwest, is, like, is God trying to get through to us in some way through these phone calls? And this started a few months of a very difficult period in our life, thinking about 
moving 2,500 miles away, um, you know, changing the way we'd conceived about our life, moving away from both of our families. And we had family members. Um, you know, I'm the youngest kid on my side. Sarah is the oldest and, you know, the nicest and the most beloved. And our child was the one grandchild on her side of the family. And we had a few family members tell us in those uncertain terms that it was plainly the will of God that we should not move. <laughs> you think, am I lying about this? This was not a laughing matter. This was like a very heavy and weighty conversation. But after these months, we discerned and then decided to pack it all up and go to California and take this one little grandchild with us. I, this was hard. I don't want you to think that we're spiritual heroes. Um, there was a lot of love and support in the background of this. Okay? One of the voices in the background was the, the voice of my dad. Okay? He's been... He's been dead for five years, but he told all five of his kids this. Find a job where you can make a difference. I don't care how much money you make, but find a way to serve and help. My dad was a semi-successful business marketing guy. He never loved his work, and I think he had lifelong regrets about his chosen profession, and he drilled into us kids from an early age. Do something where, Lord willing, you can make a little difference. God rewarded his advice by give him, giving him three poor school teachers, a missionary, and a two-bit piano player for children. <laughs> oh, boy. My oldest sister set the precedent for us, okay? Oldest of five kids. She was a successful pediatric nurse. Her husband, my brother-in-law, Kevin, was a promising young a uh, diesel engineer in the automotive business, and at age 25, they left their jobs and left everything to join the circus, the circus in this case being an organization called Youth with a Mission that does not pay you. You raise your own support, and now they have been doing this for 35 years. They are now old people with a mission. <laughs> but they work for Youth with a Mission. So... She set the precedent of it being okay to join the circus and serve God. So my sister has ended up in the country of Turkey. She's there right now. She's there the majority of the year. Our mom is, you know, in her later years, she is not well. If my mom dies, if our mom dies, my sister will not be at the funeral. She will not be able to get there. And none of us will hold it against her because she has made her primary allegiance and calling very plain. Do you hear me on this? Like on one level, you should ask the question, what kind of daughter would not attend their own parent's funeral? That sounds horrible. I'll tell you what kind of daughter, the kind of kid that loves Jesus first and has committed everything, job, future, cash, well-being, committed everything to being where she is called to be. I'm suggesting to you that maybe the best way to honor your family, the best way to honor your flesh and blood, kids, grandkids, grandparents, is by serving Jesus first. 
So some of you might be sitting there thinking, whew, well, okay, I'm safe at least. I'm not called to be a pastor. Why wham? The phone isn't, you know, going to ring four times today from California and mess my life up. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if you are following Jesus, you are not safe. Oh, you are profoundly not safe. If you are following Jesus, God has some custom-made, beautiful way for you to be of service to him in the world. Many of you have already found it, and it may be right here, or nearby, or in Chicago, or maybe this is your home base, and you're serving in a prison, or you're serving in India, or whatever you may be doing. Here's the truth. God has some direction for you, and it is you all, you all, that are God's plan for reaching the world. It is not our church staff. It is not the professional pastors. You know why the clergy is here? Simply to encourage and empower you. Because it's not us. It's you who are God's plan A for reaching the world. Does that sound like a big job description for you? That is your job description. (laughs) You are God's plan A for reaching some part of the world that no one else could reach. It may be as big and dramatic as leading some kind of international organization or ministry. It could be as small as you being the person on the floor of your nursing home who shares mints with the other people, but does it with a smile and prayer and love. And anything in between. Some of you surely are sitting here today thinking, well, Pastor Greg, I... You know, I have a job or I go to school, but I'm really not at all sure, like, what specifically God has me here for. Let me reassure you once again, there is something that only you can do. Um, I've recently been reading a book by an Episcopal priest named Barbara Brown Taylor. She is now a professor. And she relates how 25 years ago, when she was struggling with this question, God, I want to serve you, but what am I supposed to do? Um, She relates how, you know, she had conversations with different bishops and pastors. She worked in a seminary administration. She worked for church. She traveled a thousand miles and then back home. She just wasn't finding it or feeling it. Lost sleep over it. One night at midnight, she was praying this prayer to God. God, what do you want me to do? You know I desire to serve you. And she sensed that the Spirit of God sent her this word. I think this is a really good word. The Spirit of God came to her and said, Barbara, you should do whatever pleases you. And she said, (laughs) in prayer, in return, whatever pleases me? And God said to her, yes, you desire to serve me. Whatever pleases you, I will be there. Now, this was a whole different way of looking at life for her. She was trying hard to find the one thing and feeling the pressure that if she didn't find the one thing, she would be screwing her life up. Right? Lots of us feel this pressure. And in her case, the Holy Spirit gave her this wave of freedom that she experienced. And then she writes, I realized it didn't matter if I pumped gas in Idaho or if I dug latrines in India, 
whatever I set my heart and hands to, as long as I was walking in the footsteps of Jesus, God would be ahead of me and meeting me there. If you are, if you have given your heart and your primary allegiance to Jesus Christ, I think for many of us in this room today, the Holy Spirit would share a similar word. What am I supposed to do? What have I gifted you for? What are you interested in? Where do the passions of your life rub up against the deep needs of the world? If you just go there, I am already there. I will meet you there. Now, for those of us in this room today who are students, if you're a college student, if you're a high school student, even if you are a younger kid, please rest assured that God is already working in your pre-adult life. God loves to work in the human imagination. And you kids, quite frankly, have much more imagination than those of us who are older. The things that you are deeply interested in, the things that you love to play at, the things that maybe you can imagine yourself as an adult doing, pay attention to those things because that just may be the Spirit of God working in you already. Now, it might be scary because maybe you're really interested in Chinese and you think, if I end up in China, I won't be by my family. Or maybe you think, oh, Pastor Greg's sister was a missionary. I might want to be a missionary, but I might end up in some dangerous place. That may well be true. But if you follow God, it will be your best path. So kids, feel free to wonder. And we old people are praying that God will guide your imagination. Now for those of us who are older, who are parents, grandparents, great-grandparents maybe even, potentially the best gift that we can give future generations is something similar to the gift that my own dad gave me which is to let our kids and grandkids know that the best possible life that we're hoping and praying for them is a life where they hear God's call or sense God's passion for the world in their own passions and then pursue that. So many of our kids are running around feeling this huge burden of pressure that they have to be successful in school or get to this particular college, or have this particular achievement on the sporting field, or hit this target, because that's what we as parents want for them. Oh, parents, those words about not loving our sons and daughters more than Jesus, or we won't be worthy of him. Oh, heavens. I stand by. This is the greatest gift that we can give the next generation. It's great to give them a good education. But if that education doesn't ultimately put them in the will of God and living their life undependently for God, it's not worth that much. We can provide for every material need and beyond of theirs that will not make them happy unless as they grow our kids and grandkids find themselves knowing and experiencing and following the call of God. We want to keep them close and protect them, 
keep them near to us geographically, maybe even under our roof, or at least in the same city. But if the Spirit of God pushes them farther away, the best relationship we will have with them is from a distance. Sarah and I are living proof. Our relationship with our parents improved 100% by following God to a different geographic place. Our preferences, our partnerships, our friendships, even our family relationships, even in church, our old spiritual friendships, None of that comes before the call of God on our life. Happiness is not having a comfortable house, although a comfortable house is a fine thing. Happiness is not having a secure economic future, although if you have it, it is a fine thing to provide. Happiness is not getting what you want when you want it. Remember, Jesus says, if you lose your, if you find your life, if you get what you want when you want it, you will lose it. Happiness, and more importantly, the Christian virtue of joy, is being God's person. In whatever circumstance, in whatever place, in whatever environment, he calls you to be in. When you are God's person, connected to God's vision for your life and your community, all things are well, and all will be well. Amen. Will you pray with me? Oh God, help us love you more. More than any human partnership, more than any success, more than any relationship. Lead us and help us to lose everything so that we can have ultimate allegiance and find real life in you. Lord, we just want to say yes to you, to arrange our lives where we hear your gentle whisper, and then say again and again, yes and yes. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Uh, this is the time in our service.